Hello and welcome back to the Rotrack Talks podcast. My name is Tavi Wickman. This week we are speaking to Professor Emeritus at Cornell, Robert H. Frank, about his book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. You can find that in the show notes down below. This is part one of two, by the way, so we'll be back again in two weeks with the second half of this interview. So please enjoy and here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. Nice to be with you. It's good to finally have you here. Um, it's been a so you are you have a book that recently came out called the um, Under the Influence: Putting Peer Pressure to Work that came out this this spring. It's a it's a pretty simple thesis in the book. Uh, the subtitle probably gets close to it. Uh, I was originally quite opposed to the idea of using the term peer pressure anywhere in the title. But when my editor suggested putting peer pressure to work, uh, that had a kind of a, a man bites dog feel to it. I mean, normally people think of peer pressure as a negative thing. Certainly parents work hard to try to train their children not to give in to negative peer examples. But uh, peer pressure is a very uh, powerful influence on what we do. The the psychologists have a a maxim. Uh, they say it's the situation, not the person. And and by that they mean that when we see somebody engage in some behavior and we try to explain it, our impulse is to say, what what sort of a person would do that? Uh, yeah. So we think about traits of character and personality. Uh, no, that's the wrong way to think about it. Say the psychologists. Uh, much more powerful is the set of social circumstances surrounding the actor at that moment. Uh, why did she do what she did? Because of what was going on socially around her. And so I think you see probably the simplest example of that is uh, the decision to smoke. Uh, it does, it, traits of character don't explain, explain much of the variance in, in that decision across individuals. It's really almost uniquely explained by the proportion of someone's friends who smoke. If, if that number is high, uh, she's much more likely to smoke than if the number is low. And it's a big effect, bigger than anything else we've seen. If, for example, 20% of her friends smoke and that number went up suddenly to 30%, she would become 25% more likely to be a smoker. And in that case, it's an effect for ill. Uh, most smokers yeah. wish they didn't smoke. Uh, almost every parent hopes that his or her kids won't grow up to smoke. Uh, and so the fact that peers influence us in this way uh, is is a very important and, and in this case, strongly negative phenomenon. The, the other thing that's true, it doesn't get much noticed, uh, is that the social environment is itself a consequence of the choices we make. Hmm. So what's the smoking rate? It's the number of us who smoke divided by the total number of us. Uh, nobody worries, or few people anyway, worry that becoming a smoker might make others more likely to smoke because our own influence is in most cases so small. But the 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 main idea of the book is that if there were simple ways that we could induce people to choose as if they cared about their effect on the social environment, that would be a good thing to do. 
and I'm astonished that almost no one seems to have thought seriously about this question before. Uh, why is this question gone uninvestigated essentially until now? I do not know the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, um, a friend of mine who is on the opposite part of the uh, side of the political spectrum from me sent me the, um, the um, a meme, honestly, with the text. The people that dig into ideas they consider obvious are either geniuses or idiots. <laughs> um, they're either the they're either the madman who comes is banging the drum that people have him banging and not working. It, it's interesting to think about why we haven't gone here before. Uh, and I, here, too, I think the smoking example is instructive. Mm. And so what happened? We we didn't really regulate smoking seriously in the U.S. at least until we saw studies coming out of Japan that showed that exposure to secondhand smoke uh, helped cause illnesses that 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 had serious consequences. Uh, in fact, uh, those studies have been replicated. Uh, secondhand smoke exposure does cause illness, but that effect is minuscule compared to the effect of actually being a smoker. It's a very, very small effect. Regulators didn't feel they could regulate smoking unless they could point to something that would let them evoke John Stuart Mill's harm principle. Oh, if we let people smoke, they will harm innocent bystanders who have no recourse. Uh, yeah, I always liked Mill's harm principle. It's a good one. But the real harm that you do if you start smoking is not by exposing people to secondhand smoke, but by making other people in your circle more yeah. likely to become smokers. That's the real harm you do. And yet uh, regulators never saw fit to invoke that as a reason for regulating. Uh, maybe they thought, well, it's, it's not the state's job to tell you which behaviors of your friends you should copy and which ones you should avoid. You know, that's a, I kind of like that sentiment, uh, the, the sentiment that motivates that concern. But in fact, uh, the, the people who are affected by this are not just the people who decide to become smokers. Yeah, it's true. They have agency. They could have said, no, I'm not going to smoke, even though most of my friends do. What about their parents? Their parents have invested huge energy for most of their lives trying to raise them not to be smokers. If you didn't care about your kids, then you wouldn't be injured if they became smokers anyway. So big deal. They're going to die younger and suffer more. But uh, if a parent felt that way about his kids, he wouldn't raise kids in a way that you and I would want to yeah. live in the same society. You know, so we've, we've got to really count that as a serious injury to parents. And there's really nothing they can do about it. You know, if their yeah. kids' friends smoke, their kids will be more likely to smoke. Doesn't mean they'll necessarily smoke, but they're more likely to. And statistically speaking, it's a certainty that millions of additional parents will suffer injury because of that. Yeah, and it's, so it's, that's. That's the only predicate you need to invoke John Stuart Mill's harm principle. Yeah. Mill said the state shouldn't tell you what to do except to prevent undue harm to others. That's undue harm you're causing to others. Yeah. So one thing that makes me think of here is the how how clear the the or how clear the separation between knowledge and your actions really is. Um, you can count on I'm sure thousands of doctors that do smoke that are very much aware that their action, that them smoking is 
is negative for them and those around them, but still they continue to do it. Um, we all know that a bicycle helmet will help us stay alive if we crash, yet, as you read in your book, we don't do it anyway because it just looks dorky or not cool and it messes up your hair and you've spent so much time, or at least for the people that still have lots of hair on top of their head, getting that special part on the side of their head and and when they put it on the helmet, that gets fucked up and they have to go back to the bathroom and fix it. Yeah, and, and I think the the people who advocate regulating helmet wear, requiring it, say, oh, we need to regulate it because then the state has to pay for the medical costs, the people who get injured. In fact, the people who get injured and killed from not wearing a helmet save the state money. They die younger. They don't collect pension benefits. They don't collect old, old age health uh, care costs that are very, very large, typically at the end of life. So, so no, the budget reasons do not argue for regulating helmets. It's, it's the fact that if you don't wear a helmet, you make wearing a helmet seem uncool. And uh, it's, it's true, not just for kids, but for adults too, that that matters. You know, I had a colleague a year I spent on sabbatical in France who said uh, she, she would ride her bike without wearing a helmet. And I said, it's, it's a shame to be such a slave to fashion that you can't wear a helmet riding your bike to the office. Oh, no, 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 that wasn't an issue for her. But then two weeks later, she came and said she had tried on some helmets at, at a, a store. She just couldn't imagine appearing in public looking like that. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a social thing. Yeah. Um, one thing I'm really happy to see about this, this is not an ad. It's not, you know, any sponsored um, content. But in Sweden, we have a brand called Hövding, which are these um, black um, thick straps you have around your neck with a bit of a padding in the back. And as soon as it feels that you're crashing, it expands into a inflatable foam helmet. Oh, my goodness. Um, Never seen those. They are yeah. very popular here. Um, and the people that are wearing them are often people in Östermal in the more posh area of, of Stockholm, biking to and from work in you know a nice merino wool, wool suit and a tie. Um, but they're wearing helmets. Technically, it doesn't show, yes. but they're wearing helmets. Yeah, we'll have to get somebody to import those here. Yeah, um, it's 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 one of those innovations that you know it's not an innovation that's necessary. Helmets were perfectly fine, but to make people wear them is a massive step, and that's you know where that is coming in to solve it, which is costs a lot more, uh, but people are will, willing to pay a lot more to maintain an appearance, um, which actually brings us into something else, and that's the um, I guess it's relative and objective goods that you write about in the book as well. Um, the, and this for me is, you know, the, the willingness for people to pay to not be seen in a helmet, wearing a ding or whatever it is, um, really is, you know, it's a relative thing. It's not an objective good. You, you can buy a $100 helmet from any bike store in the world and you'll get the same effect, uh, possibly a better effect, honestly. But it's, it's all relative. Yeah, we've run into that same uh, issue in the example of wearing masks during the pandemic. Uh, we have extreme political polarization here, more so than, than you have. And uh, for some reason, the, the 
the right side of the aisle has decided that it is unmanly to wear a mask. And so many people defiantly refuse to wear masks, even though the science is getting clearer day by day that it's probably the single most important step you can take to slow the transmission of of the virus, not only uh, reduce the probability of you're getting it, but reduce the probability that you will cause others to get it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's um, spot on. The um, I don't take uh, much trusting uh, Trump administration officials, but I believe it was Dr. Robert Redfield, who's um, uh, higher up in Trump's um, medical establishment right now, who said that a um, everybody wearing masks would most likely be more effective uh, near term than an effective vaccine coming on the market. Well, that that's almost certainly true since there isn't a vaccine on the market. But but uh, you know, if there were an effective vaccine, probably that's not true. But we don't have one, and yeah. in the meantime, until everybody gets vaccinated, wearing a mask is one of the best things we've got going for us. Yeah. So one thing I want to get bring up here is um, the idea of the collective action, action economy. How you have people incentivized to go out and buy things that are a lot more about or to compensate for something else, something else other people are doing. Um, the idea with the rational and irrational actor on the market. Um, you bring up an example of a concert in the book. Can you tell us a bit more about that? You know, the the political right in the U.S. has very uh, strongly embraced uh, an idea that is wrongly attributed to Adam Smith. Uh, that's the invisible hand, a very narrow version of the invisible hand idea, which is that if you turn rational, freedom-loving people loose in the free market and tell them to seek their own selfish interest, uh, you will automatically get the best of all possible outcomes for society as a whole as a result of that. Uh, Smith's uh, amazement was that that was sometimes true, that selfish, selfish action sometimes did serve the broader interest, but he absolutely never did believe that that was always true. And in the Darwinian view of competition, uh, it's often true, and it's true uh, also in economic analysis, that what's in the individual's interest to do is often squarely at odds with what is in our interest that we all do. And you mentioned the example of concerts. If people in front of you stand at a concert, you can't see. Yeah. Uh, what is it rational for you to do? Well, you'll stand too, thereby to restore your line of sight. Others behind you will stand. Pretty soon everybody's standing. And when that happens, nobody sees any better than if everybody had remained comfortably seated. And yet nobody regrets having stood. Nobody regrets uh, uh, the fact that they can see now that, that because they've stood. Uh, but there's no presumption that everybody standing is a better outcome than everybody remaining comfortably seated. That's palpably not the case. Yeah. So in our spending decisions and in a whole variety of, of decisions, what's in our interest to do as in, individuals is absolutely not in our interest that we all do. We talk louder at cocktail parties to be heard, uh, but then others talk louder. And when we leave, we all have sore throats. If we had all spoken more softly, would, we would have heard just as well. There, there are so many examples of cases like that where what I do cancels out what you do. And so we each incur costs and get no benefit at all from what we've done. Yeah, no, I can absolutely see myself in 
those examples. I tend to lead the party when I have a conversation I want to have. I just like, you know what, let's go outside. Let's take this out here. <laughs> yes. uh, so I don't have to scream. Um, but I, yeah, so this is a massive problem. And I think it's a problem that we have in Sweden. Um, the city of Vancouver has a speculative um, housing market, which makes it even worse because you have many more actors um, coming into the market and trying to um, either well, grab some of this positional good for themselves. But what you have a proposal about how you can solve this. Um, you know, I think in the in the cases where what we do influences what others do in a, a sort of a mutually escalating way, uh, and, and the consequence of that is harmful, the smoking example, again, provides... Uh, clear guidance. We taxed cigarettes. We did not ban smoking. We did not tell people, if you really want to smoke, uh, we're going to prevent you from doing that. Go ahead and smoke if you want. You cause harm to others by smoking. And in acknowledgement of that fact, we are going to tax you for smoking to compensate for the harms that, that you do to others. And since we have to tax something anyway, the fact that we are taxing smoking enables us to reduce taxes on beneficial activities. Uh, right now, for example, in the U.S., we tax uh, employer payrolls. That discourages companies from hiring workers. Why on earth would we want to discourage a practice like that? So taxing activities that cause harm to others is a win-win move. Uh, mm -hmm. You reduce the harm to others. You make it possible to reduce taxes on useful activities, which are themselves harmful. And what's not to like about that? So that's that's the general prescription that comes out of the analysis. It's not just taxes that we can employ. There are many other instruments, but but I think if you if you care about protecting individual freedom, what we know is that some people have a hard time changing their behavior than others. What's important is to get the level of pollution down, not not to zero, but to a to a, a, a level where the the harm it causes at the margin is is about on balance with what it would cost to reduce it still further. Uh, that's that's the level we are aiming for, and taxes are a really good instrument to help us get to a point like that. Yeah, um, I think you wrote about what's called SO two permits permits um, and pollution permits here. Um, in Europe, in the European Union, they have um, a, a carbon trading system where you can buy uh, um, pollution rights, and those you can buy those, and you can you're well, allowed a certain amount. You can buy more if you if you need yes. them. And those are, these allow this allows you if you need to pollute, if you can't reduce your pollution yes. more, to viably do that. Um, yes, that's a wonderful uh, system uh, response. It's exactly equivalent to a carbon tax, but uh, I think people like it better because it's not called a tax, but if you have to buy a permit in order to be able to emit gases into the air, then it's a, in, a, in effect exactly a tax. Yeah. And, and what that does is it makes goods that have uh, high carbon footprints more expensive relative to other goods. And so that transforms decisions all across every spectrum of our lives. So you think about meat consumption. Uh, uh, people talk about outlawing meat. Well, that's probably a heavy-handed approach that would be defeated 
politically, people grow up eating meat, they're used to it. If instead, what, you know, why do you eat meat? Because you grew up with people who ate meat and all your friends eat meat. If you, instead you taxed carbon or had, had a permit system like the one you described, meat would become more expensive. Most people wouldn't react much to that. We know that, that people don't change their habits easily, but a few would. Uh, and because some people would be eating less meat, that would make it less of a violation of eating customs to have guests for dinner and serve a vegetarian meal. You wouldn't be thought to be a, uh, a cheapskate if you did that. And as more and more people change their behavior, the real magnitude of the shift you would see would come not from the, t the tax directly, but from the influence of the changing social norms about food consumption. Yeah. So yeah, you get, you get a huge dividend from policies like that. You make, Solar energy cheaper, more people will in, install solar panels on the rooftops. And it's the fact that you see others like you installing them that makes you do it, not the fact that the price changed, although that played a small role. Yeah, of course, it, 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 oh, money always plays a role, but it's not always the biggest one that, that right. you can count on. Um, but well, in the that, smoking you know, case, that shows up very strongly because smoking is probably one of the most addictive practices that we know of. A, a friend of mine who had been a heroin addict, addict said that it was much harder to quit smoking than to quit heroin. Mm -hmm. So we know that if we tax cigarettes, most smokers will go on smoking, but some will quit. A few will quit. Others uh, won't start who would have. That means every peer group th that has those people now has a smaller proportion of smokers and it just radiates out. Yeah. Um, I actually just this, this morning looked at some statistics when it comes to Sweden. Um, in the late in 1983, uh, the percentage of, and Sweden is a country that has a lot of statistics, we, we uh, like to count things. Um, in 1983, it was just over 31% of, um, of women that had smoked close to or immediately prior to pregnancy. Right. One in three, give or take. Yeah. Uh, today, that percentage is just above four percent in some and regions, nobody nobody looks two. at that change and says oh that's a bad thing we shouldn't have done that uh everybody thinks that's a good thing unless of course you're a tobacco company uh, possibly unless <laughs> unless of course you're trying to sell cigarettes yeah in which case you're it's a very worrying trend right there but yeah that's, this really brings me into um and you mentioned dividends here um and there's a couple of places that actually do carbon dividends when it comes to um, making it easier to put these taxes in place. Um, I believe in your book, you, you talked about um, congestion pricing and such. Um, yes. how, how does that work? Well, if, if you get on a crowded highway, uh, you wouldn't get on it in the first place unless it was the fastest way to get where you want to go. So, so it's not irrational for you to do that, even though it's crowded. But you're getting on that highway makes everybody else who's on it take longer to get there. And it may, mm -hmm. may be that the, you get there one minute quicker going that route and everybody else, the extra delays they face accumulates to two hours. So it's, it's very inefficient for you to get on that highway. You cause harm to others by getting on it. And by charging a congestion fee, uh, during the, the, the busy times, we, we encourage people who don't need to travel during those times to travel some other time or figure out some other way to, to arrange their lives where they don't have to travel uh, during the congested period. And 
it's a huge win for everybody if we do that. And in, in the case of carbon fees, uh, the, nobody likes to be taxed, of course, when you propose it as a, oh, we're just going to tax you for carbon. Uh, people get angry and they say no. But if we did what economists call a revenue neutral carbon tax, that means you collect all the revenue from the carbon tax and then you give it back to the people, mm-hmm. the very same people who paid the carbon tax yeah. each month as a monthly dividend, then, well, what we know is that worldwide, the top 10% of all earners uh, emit half of all CO2 emissions. Yeah. So most of the revenue would come from wealthy people if we gave the tax receipts back to people in a progressive way, we could set it up so that 90% of the people would get more back each month than they'd paid in in carbon yeah. taxes. So they're, they're better off transparently just from that move alone. Plus, they'll have an incentive to shift from carbon heavy footprint to carbon light footprint goods. The rich would pay more because uh, they use so much more energy than everybody else. But they benefit disproportionately from the climate cleanup. You know, it's their taxes that are going to have to pay most of the mitigation costs from climate damage. So everybody wins from, from that move. It's, it's just political malpractice that everybody hasn't already done that. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really one of those issues where it's a good idea and it doesn't become law because the politics of it isn't always great. Um, well, the politics ought to be great. I mean, if if 90% of the people are going to come out ahead and the 10% who end up paying more get net benefits too, how how good of a salesman would you have to be to persuade people to back a plan like that? Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, uh, with with the the politics of the world today, um, there are some policies that have opinion uh, popularity like that um, that still don't pass. Um, For example, Comprehensive background controls in the states is one of such policies. Yes, where exactly. It has everybody's in favor of it. Almost everybody's in favor of it. It's, you know, I think if I were wealthy, I would take some of my my millions and hire Pixar animators to make public service videos that would explain. And that concludes the first half of the interview with. Professor Robert H. Frank of Cornell. We will be back again in two weeks with this next episode, so please tune in for that and to hear the rest of our interview here. You can find the book, of course, in the show notes. My name is Tavi Wickman, and Rotract Talks is a podcast by Rotract Sweden with me, Tavi Wickman. Please remember that if you are not a member of Rotary or Rotract yet, do join us. It's a ton of fun. And subscribe to the podcast, share with your friends, and Come back next week. Have a great day.